Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and his word, is 2 Samuel 13, verses 1 through 39. Which means that this morning, we come to one of the most disturbing stories in the Bible. It stands at the beginning of the last major section of the Samuel narrative. The sins we encounter in this passage are what set in motion the plot line that will be developed from here through chapter 20, verse 22. You can tell whom this new section of Samuel focuses on now, at least for much of it, by the way verse 1 of our chapter begins. Look at verse 1. It's carefully constructed. Now Absalom, it says, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and after a time Amnon, David's son, loved her. There's a clue for us there. In the way verse 1 begins, what we're about to read has the narrative purpose of introducing us to Absalom, whose story is the dominant one in chapters 13 through 20 of 2 Samuel, and it is a dark, terrible story. Many other persons will be involved, of course, in what unfolds now in 2 Samuel. Absalom himself will be dead by chapter 18, after all. Soon we'll see David's entire family torn by the hatred that's unleashed in the terrible episode before us. But let me begin by saying to you that this shouldn't really come as a surprise. Not if you've been with us in our study of 2 Samuel recently. Four Sundays ago, we came to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And in the aftermath of David's double sin of adultery and murder, we came to Nathan's prophecy in 2 Samuel 12, verse 10. Let me begin actually in verse 9, 2 Samuel 12, verse 9. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, Nathan says on behalf of the Lord, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. That's what begins to unfold in chapter 13 this morning. In fact, we're supposed to read chapter 13 in light of what's gone before. Yes, David's sin is forgiven, but its complications have to be resolved. Sin can be denied. Sin can be forgotten. Sin can even be atoned for, but sin's consequences often remain. 
And what I propose to do this morning in this sermon is straightforward. First, I, I want to consider what we can of the narrative in chapter 13. I want to draw out some key moments and insights from it as we go. And then secondly, having considered that narrative, I want to offer reflections under two headings, but we'll talk about that more when we get there. I told the pastoral team this week I was not keen to preach this text. I'm still not, (laughs) but that's the pattern we'll follow for the rest of our time. Let me make this one other comment at the outside, outset here. You may have observed as Megan read this that the Lord is nowhere mentioned in this chapter. But I don't think that means we're supposed to read it without reference to him. Because the Lord is involved here in a way that we'll come to at the end of our sermon time. First, let me consider the story before us. As we do that, we need, of course, to keep the characters straight. And if this is the first hearing or reading you've had of this, that becomes a bit of a challenge right at the front. There are five main characters in the story. Not in order of appearance here, just in order of how I want to talk about them. First, there's David, of course. You know it. David's the main human character in all of 2 Samuel. And if you've been with us, you know David was God's chosen king over God's chosen people. We've recently considered even how this astonishing promise had been made to David in chapter 7, verse 16, when the Lord said, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We haven't been very impressed by David recently. Second, there's Amnon. Amnon is David's eldest son, as chapter 3, verse 2 makes explicit. That means that Amnon was at this time the most obvious candidate to inherit David's throne. We know that will be Solomon, but the nature of that not clear to everybody at this point. Third, then, there's Absalom. Absalom's another son of David, whom, as we've already mentioned, will become the main character in the coming chapters. Absalom was apparently now the second oldest surviving son of David at this time. There is an older brother who's mentioned in chapter 3, verse 3, between Amnon and Absalom, but it seems that that older brother must have died young, perhaps. All indications are that Absalom now was the son who's second in line to the throne. So that Amnon and Absalom are half-brothers, you understand. They're sons of David with different mothers. But then fourthly is Tamar, who is David's daughter and Absalom's full sister. So that Tamar is half-sister to Amnon. And then finally, fifthly in this account, you have Jonadab who's a son of David's brother, Shimea. This is David's nephew. This is Amnon's and Absalom's cousin. So you have to keep these figures clear. 
the narrative itself is really two accounts, brilliantly told. In fact, 2 Samuel 13 is studied as an example of how Hebrew narrative operates at its finest. And we'll just discover a little of that side of things here together, but mainly I'm just going to keep things simple. Verses 1 to 22 deal with the rape of Tamar by Amnon. Verses 23 to 39 deal with the murder of Amnon by Absalom. It's lust and rape, followed by hate and murder. And you can see it, can't you? The parallels with David. It is the twofold sin of David, brothers and sisters, repeated in pattern broadly, though now intensified by his sons. It's sexual sin followed by murder. And things are disordered from the beginning. Look at, look at this now again at the end of verse 1. We don't know how long it's been since chapter 12, but verse 1b of chapter 13 says, And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved Tamar, except that it wasn't actually love at all, was it? It was pure desire. As the narrative carefully reveals, it was sexual desire run rampant, untempered by any consideration of the other. Look at verse 2. Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. It takes zero imagination to figure out what Amnon wanted to do to her. Right. All the narrator has to do is phrase it just that way and you understand. Eminem's attraction is obsessive. It is self-absorbed. He's literally driven mad by pent-up sexual desire. That's not love. Love desires the good of the other. Amnon didn't love her at all. That's what the narrator is showing us. The narrative explicitly says, in fact, he hated her after his selfish deed was done. It so happened Amnon had a friend, verse 3 says. Perhaps this is an, an advisor, Jonadab, who obviously has full access to the court of David, given how he appears in this chapter. The end of verse 3 says, Jonadab was a very crafty man, the ESV translates. Except that literally, I understand why they did that, but literally the wording in the Hebrew is that Jonadab was a very wise man. Why? Because the narrator uses the same language of those who are genuinely wise in the Bible, but the point becomes that Jonadab's wisdom wasn't really wisdom at all. Just as Amnon's love really wasn't love at all. It was, in fact, the opposite. Jonadab's skill and insight entirely lacks any scruple or integrity. His was merely craftiness of the worst kind. And so Amnon told Joab he loved Tamar. My brother Absalom's sister, he says, 
not because Jonadab didn't know who Tamar was, but to emphasize the point that it's because she's Absalom's sister that Amnon feels he can't fulfill his desires here. That becomes important later on. And you see, if Jonadab were really wise, then he would have given Amnon some advice at this point that would have been something along the lines of, say, Proverbs chapter 5, verses 20 to 23. Listen to that short text here. Maybe even jot it down to reflect on this more this week. This is Proverbs 5, verses 20 to 23. Here's wisdom, folks. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Whew. Just let that phrase sit for a minute. He is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. That's wisdom. That's what Jonadab should have said if he were wise. That's not what Jonadab was at all. So instead, he crafts a wicked plan. He knows what Amnon wants, and he tells Amnon how he can get it. The plan's bizarre, in a way. Amnon is to play sick, to protest to his father that he'll accept nourishment only from the hand of his half-sister. I mean, why would that strike anyone as reasonable is a puzzling thing, I think, but David falls for it. Verse 7 Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. And I think we sense that something's wrong about how easily David is manipulated here. Though he himself had been a sexual manipulator, David doesn't seem to suspect that Amnon might be playing a dangerous game here. And I don't know whether it's pure naivete or not. My honest view is that David was grossly negligent that for him not to have remarked on the dangerous narcissism of his eldest son, to have been so inattentive, to not have noticed Amnon's unhealthy attraction to his half-sister, I can't prove anything. Obviously, David didn't see exactly what was coming, but there's something off here in how readily David's willing to indulge Amnon whatever he wants and In doing so, of course, David himself becomes complicit in his son's crime. Kingdom politics are in play here too, right? David should have seen that. Tamar is the the full sister of the impressive Absalom, Amnon's half-brother, who is doubtless a rival claimant to the succession. Raping Tamar isn't just about sex. It's also about Amnon asserting his dominance over Absalom, I think, which is part of why Absalom will react with such vehemence later in the chapter. So now just as David is 
lied on lay on his bed and had arranged for a woman to be brought to him Amnon does the same now with the indirect assistance of David himself everything suggests that Tamar is unaware of what's going on in Amnon's mind she immediately responds to David's instruction she goes to Amnon's house and then the whole narrative just slows down beginning in verse 8 There's a series of double entendres, in fact, in the Hebrew that you can't see in the English. The tension builds in the way the narrative is told. Eventually, you come to the terrifying moment in verse 11. Amnon took hold of Tamar and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. And it's in Tamar's response that we find the narrator's view of what's going on here, right? She refuses him in quick staccato-like statements because you can't doubt that she's in full panic. I can't read it with the kind of terror and emotion that would be in her voice, but here's verse 12. No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where I could carry my shame, as for you, you'd be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king. He will not withhold me from you. She's terrified. I mean, rape is shameful enough. This was more than rape. This was incest. That was explicitly forbidden in the covenant law. Tamar, in fact, calls it in Hebrew the word nevelah, which the ESV reads as outrageous thing. But the key is that that literally translates as foolish thing. In the deepest sense of the word, it's godlessness. It's perverted wickedness. That's why she says you will be one of the outrageous fools in Israel. There the ESV brings the fool term into it, but that's the same word. You'll be one of the nevalim. And you read that language and you find out, if you look at it, that there are other dark echoes here. Because this same terminology is used in the context of other incidents of grave sexual offense in the Bible. You find this exact terminology in the rape of Dinah in Genesis 34. In the rape of the Ephraimite woman in Gibeah in Judges 19. In the attempted sexual assault of the three angelic visitors in Sodom in Genesis 19. Amnon is about to join their ranks, you see. Tamar reminds him not only of the wickedness of the act itself, what it would make him, but also of the burden it will permanently lay on her. Where could I carry my shame, she asks. Her violation would forever mark her as a pariah. She'd be affected far more negatively by Amnon's lust than Bathsheba was by David's even. Finally, Tamar becomes so desperate as I read it to avoid being raped that she even suggests the possibility that David would give her to her brother if he asked. Hard to know what to make of that. I'd like to say I know that David would not actually have done that. But in any case, this was Tamar's last desperate ploy to put off her half-brother. 
And the thing you have, the thing to see here is that none of what she says matters to him. None of that matters. He has his way with her, verse 14, but he would not listen to her, the narrator says. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Except the Hebrew doesn't even have the word with in that sentence. It's just he laid her. The language is brutal. The act was brutal. The word violated speaks of humiliation, oppression, subjugation. That's what Tamar is facing. Then comes verse 15. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Then Amnon said to her, get up, go. You see, the selfishness of his violation of Tamar had just unmasked this delusion that he loved her. He couldn't bear to have her in his presence any longer. Tamar knows the danger she's in. She's utterly exposed to ridicule, to permanent social exile. She begs him not to put her out. He won't listen. With unutterable cruelty, Amnon... Orders are sent away. The door bolted after her. And uh, in one of the most pathetic scenes in the Bible, Tamar places ashes on her head, tears her beautiful garment, rests her hand on her head in mourning, and returns home crying as she goes. At which point, in verse 20, Absalom enters the narrative. And it's telling that he guessed what had happened. Is it? Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? He asked. He intuits that Amnon is the perpetrator. I mean, did David not see this? How is it that... Absalom is the one more attuned to the dynamics of this family. Now, hold your peace, my sister, he says. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. Now, that seems like a very strange and wrong thing to say until you understand that you're hearing it wrong. You have to understand what Absalom means here isn't that what happened wasn't a big deal. (laughs) What he means is he's saying to Tamar, you don't need to deal with this matter yourself. I'll deal with it. He's your brother. Things are complicated. I think if it was anybody else, Absalom would have just gone right out. Absalom wasn't appealing to family solidarity or sisterly feelings in this. Do not take this to heart. Wasn't him speaking unsympathetically as much as we naturally read it that way in English. This is him promising her, I've taken this matter into my heart. That's not going to end up being a good thing, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But here we are again. Now we come right to David again, don't we? What would David do? 
First, it seems good when you read verse 21, if you're looking there in the text, when David heard all of these things, he was very angry, it says. Surely, surely the king's anger would result in some defense of his violated daughter, some punishment of his violent son. Surely the David who dispatched Goliath and slew his thousands and took the foreskins of 200 Philistines and conquered the Ammonites and killed the Amalekite who brought news of Saul's death would muster some response to an act of brutality within his old household. But no. All the text says is he was very angry. That's damning. There's a footnote at this point in the ESV. It's really small print, but do you see it there? Look at the footnote at this verse, 21, if you have it there. In the footnote, you see it tells you the Septuagint, in fact, which is the ancient Greek version of the Old Testament. The Septuagint has an added line at this point, and scholars debate whether or not it was original in the Hebrew. But even if it wasn't original in the Hebrew, I think it tells us where David was at here. Look at that line in the footnote. If you could see it, it says, but David would not punish his son Abnon because he loved him since he was his firstborn. I mean, David's failure is massive. However you explain it. Was it that David recognized too much of himself in what Amnon had done? The text doesn't say. One thing's clear. David's failure to act as a responsible father and king in Israel at this point sets the stage for someone else to fill the vacuum, and that someone else is Absalom. And verse 22 gives us a clue that that's going to be a disaster. Verse 22, but Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. And with that, the second narrative of the chapter then commences in verse 23. Absalom bided his time for two years before he found an appropriate occasion for dealing with Amnon's crime. It was sheep shearing time, just the right cover So during the time of sheep shearing, shepherds would be rewarded for the number of sheep that they presented and the work of the shearing itself would be interspersed with celebration and feasting. And that's when Absalom saw his opportunity to take Amnon by surprise. He'd bring him up to Baal Hazor. It's about 15 miles north northeast of Jerusalem. In fact, verse 23 says Absalom invited all the king's sons for the celebration, but it's in verse 24 that we learn how Absalom orchestrated all of that. First, Absalom had invited David and his servants too, verse 24 says, knowing, I think, that David would decline that. Because that would have meant the whole of David's court. The expense and the burden of that would have been too much. Absalom knew that. David politely declined. The Hebrew is very polite very formal. Absalom presses, as he should have done. David politely will not go. The setup worked. And so then, verse 26, then Absalom said, if not, 
please let my brother Amnon go with us. And I think that for just a moment there, for just a moment, we get the sense that David knows something's up. Right? Verse 26 continues, And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? David wouldn't have forgotten what Amnon had done. Absalom had refused to speak to Amnon for two years. David should have no, would have noticed that. David should have suspected something here. David should have prevented the entire thing. But Absalom pressed him, verse 27 says, until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. And actually, no, the Hebrew says David sent Amnon and all his sons. Amnon didn't have a choice. It all worked, just as Absalom no doubt had hoped it would. I mean, this is incredible. Has David grown that naive? Here he is being set up as an accomplice to the murder of his son, just as Amnon had previously set him up to be an accomplice to Tamar's rape. As one commentator puts it, the king who attempted to manipulate his own way out of responsibility for adultery and murder has now himself become a pathetic object of manipulation. And it's as good as done at that point. Absalom gave the order to his boys in verse 28. There it is. Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, he commanded. And when I say to you, strike Amnon, kill him. Verse 29, the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. And thus Absalom avenged the rape of Tamar, even as he cleared the ground for his own claim to the throne, because Absalom has bigger things in mind, as we'll find out in future weeks. Just skip ahead to verse 37. Our narrator says in verse 37, But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. Talmai is actually Absalom's maternal grandfather. You see all those connections again in chapter 3, verse 3. He's going to family, and and Gesher is east of the Jordan River. It's to the north. It's beyond David's jurisdiction. Absalom will stay there three years, according to verse 38, and it's what happens after those three years that occupy the rest of 2 Samuel. And I just... I mean, folks, there's actually a whole lot more that could be said about the narrative alone of 2 Samuel 13. It's, but time's gone, and it's gone. So let, let me move now to some reflections. I'm thinking of things on two levels here. And for lack of a better way of putting this, I want to reflect on this story with you briefly. First at the human level, And then also at the divine level. Why is this story here in the word of God? What's God telling us in all of this? This is dark. I've never asked Emily not to bring my girls to a Sunday service before. What are we supposed to take from this? Let me start on the human level. 
with what is obvious. This story is a terrifying example of what sin can do to people. This is not here for entertainment. Which I only say because this is the kind of story that actually has become the stuff of entertainment in our day. Right? That's not it. This is an historic warning. This is a warning of just how deceptive temptation can be, particularly sexual temptation. Just consider how Amnon would not listen to Tamar. Really, it was as though he could not listen to her. His desire had completely overwhelmed him, just as Proverbs said. Consider the misery that Amnon's sin brought on everyone. Tamar especially, but far beyond her too. Consider the cascading effects of sin, how sin easily begets more sin. Right? How as David neglects to act as he should have. How then Absalom seethes in anger that will result in murder. And we're not done yet. I mean, those of you who know the further sweep of the narrative know that three of David's son, Amnon and Absalom and Adonijah, they'll all meet with violent deaths. I mean, that scene when the surviving sons of the king return at the end of our chapter and then they and their father break into this just weeping, literally in the Hebrew, weeping of very great weeping. I mean, you have to see that they wept in part for a family that's so obviously torn, dysfunctional, riven by rape, murder. I mean, there's much you can learn in this story about the nature of sin. Its capacity to destroy us. And to destroy others. But let me reflect a bit more on these things from a different plane. I think we're supposed to keep near the front of our minds as we come into chapter 13 the key reason why this whole terrible sequence of events is happening at all. That, of course, is because David was an adulterer and a murderer. And life in David's kingdom here now rushes along, driven by lust and conniving and weakness and hatred, and a shattered woman remains ignored by justice, unrestored by murder. What's it all for? God's never mentioned in the whole affair we'd be forgiven to wonder whether the kingdom that God had established has gone out of control, right? It's course just subject to the sins of men, but of course the picture's bigger than that. The picture's bigger than that of the human level. I think the great tension we should feel in reading this dark chapter is that this is the Lord fulfilling his word against the house of David. We have, no, commentators don't do this much, but we have to let the strength of the judgment in 2 Samuel 12 continue to ring here. The sword shall never depart from your house, David. 
because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Don't pretend that's not there. I will raise up evil. That's the Lord talking through Nathan. Look, here's the tension I feel at this point of 2 Samuel. The characters in chapter 13 are acting autonomously in grievous sin. There's zero manipulation here. But even as David's sons make these free choices, their failures are part of the judgment of the Lord against David and against David's house. And through it all, David's no more than just a bit part player. He sends Tamar to help her brother, then he's angry about the rape. Then he sends Amnon to the sheep shearing, and then he just mourns for his son. He gets angry, he sends, he mourns, he does nothing else. He doesn't punish Amnon, he doesn't march out against Absalom, and at this point you almost don't expect him to. The earlier wickedness of David seems to have produced a weakness in him. He loved his sons, but he seems powerless to curb their sinful inclinations. Why? Here's the most chilling thing, I think, after you consider this entire chapter in light of the judgment spoken of in chapter 12. Listen to me. The free, sinful acts of David's sons are the carrying out of divine judgment. And David won't, or maybe better, David can't do anything to stop it. And you know how I think this all works? I think it's just the reverse of what we saw last week in Romans 6, if you were here. I think this is all what happens when God doesn't change hearts. Right? When he leaves us, when he leaves us to the desires of our hearts, isn't that what we're seeing here? This is what sin does, brothers and sisters. It objectifies, it dominates, it abuses, it seethes, it murders, it weakens. And this is a challenge because we read 2 Samuel 13 and we think, oh man, I'm not that bad. I haven't done things like Amnon and Absalom did. And we missed the point. I read 2 Samuel 13 and my thought at the end of it is there is no hope of escape apart from the Lord. Apart from him, we share the same nature of Amnon and Absalom, whether or not we duplicate their deeds. Listen as we close to how Paul puts this in Titus. Just listen to this language as you think about what we've just worked through in our chapter this morning. This is Titus 3, verse 3. Jot it down if you're taking notes. Titus 3, verse 3. Listen to this. Paul writes, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I mean, stop. Do you hear the assessment of who we are there? 
foolish. Remember that word on Tamar's lips? Outrageous fools. Disobedient. Slaves to passions and pleasures. Hated by others. Hating one another. Let me ask you this. The specifics of 2 Samuel 13 may strike you as extreme, but are they not just the magnification of what Paul says we ourselves are? Or were, according to Paul, How does the Lord carry out his judgment against David's sin? Here's my answer. He leaves David's sons alone. That's all. He leaves them right where Titus 3 verse 3 says we all are. Or where we all were, because Paul goes on in verse 4. Titus 3 verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, listen to this, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. By God's grace this morning, 2 Samuel 13 can serve as a warning to us, but it need not be our reality. By God's grace, the promise given to David in 2 Samuel 7 will be fulfilled despite all that chapter 13 contains. And in that fulfillment will come a salvation far greater than anything David could have imagined. By God's grace, the ultimate son of David has come. And he didn't inherit his father David's flaws and failures. And he calls us all into a kingdom where corruption, even the likes of Amnon and Absalom, can be washed clean. For such were some of you, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.